All right, we're taking a one-week detour from John. We'll get back to John next week. Uh, But right now we are, well, this morning we're going to be in Jeremiah, chapter 29. If you're able to turn over there. One of the things that I discovered this week is that I have precisely one commentary on Jeremiah. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. And that was only Calvin. Uh, Thankfully, there was one other book on mission that had a lengthy section on Jeremiah 29 as a result. So uh, we'll just be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. Hear the word of our God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters uh, and daughters multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Father, since you are the God of endurance and encouragement, would you grant us to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ? Help us to understand the Scriptures to that very end, that we would trust you and that we would love our neighbor. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that became very clear to me uh, a couple years into my seminary experience was that I was still a New Englander at heart. There was a sense in which I was a New Englander in exile. I longed to be there, not during the winter, but I longed to be there because, you know, Florida is flat and it's hot. And it's humid as opposed to the nice rolling hills and mountains of New England. Grassy fields and all of that stuff. I missed New England. I still miss New England. When we were in transition, one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to move closer to home. 
You know, that would have been north of Florida, right? God has a sense of humor. I'm still in exile. There's a part of my heart that belongs somewhere else. And, and you, you know that because what sports do I follow? Boston sports. So, yes, I was up late watching on my Yahoo feed how the Red Sox and Yankees were going well into the night the other day. The Israelites were in a far more profound sense of exile. They didn't choose to leave their home. They were sent away from their home. And now we as Christians, as we're going to talk about, uh, as we kind of unpack all of this, we have a sense that we are not at home. All of us should long for the heavenly Jerusalem, and we deal with the fact every day that we're not there. Okay? This passage was written to them that they might know how they were to live in exile, and it teaches us as well how we are to live in a very different sort of exile, but an exile nonetheless. As I mentioned in Sunday school, I have Crosby, Stills, and Nash in my brain, which is unusual because I don't like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But I, I changed one of their songs to, If You Can't Be in the City You Love, The Heavenly Jerusalem. Love the one you're in. So the big idea is that Christ has placed us here for the good of the city. Let's start with this, in that in Christ we are exiles in enemy, and I have the air quotes for those who cannot see me right now, territory. Okay? Jeremiah gives us the background of this letter that is being sent to the exiles. He's still in Judah. As we heard from our reading from chapter 25, uh, Jeremiah had labored for years, persistently proclaiming the word of God, warning the people about a coming uh, exile if they did not repent. And in fact, the, the judgments that we see in Deuteronomy, the curses of the covenant that come for breaking God's law, had come upon Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. Jeremiah still remains in Judah under the puppet king Zedekiah who was set up. I mean, he was part of the royal family, but he was set up by Nebuchadnezzar to be the king. And so because Zedekiah is sending correspondence up to Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah sends correspondence, but not to Nebuchadnezzar. He sends it to the surviving elders. He sends it to the prophets, to the priests, to all the people of Judah that have been sent up. And let us, I want us to remember something as we think about this. The Babylonian conquest of Judah was not like one fell swoop. It was Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he conquers, he takes the important people, drags them on up, but he left some people behind in, in Jerusalem and Judah but he would come back when they once again rebelled against him. And so when we, when we think about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, before Christ, uh, we, we kind of think of it in stages because of how this all kind of took place. And so we're kind of in the middle of that, where the nobles and the valuable people, the craftsmen, has been, have been brought up to Babylon, but there are still some like Jeremiah himself who remain. And, but Jeremiah still loves the people of God, and so he sends this letter to them 
though they are up in Babylon. This is an all-encompassing sort of thing, as I mentioned. It's the surviving elders, it's the priests, it's the prophets, it's all the people who are in exile there. He's not writing to a friend. He's not writing to one small group. This is for everybody, all of the Jews who have been carted off into exile in Babylon. And what's interesting is the contrast between the introduction to the letter and what Jeremiah says in the letter. Because as this is built up in the uh, talking about the letter that's sent, it is sent to those whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Okay, the, the focus is on what Nebuchadnezzar did. Okay, he is the one, from an earthly perspective, who brought them into exile. Okay, they were a conquered people. They're not there on vacation. They didn't decide to move because they didn't like the cold winters like I did and wanted to go to seminary where it was warm. They went unwillingly. They went in chains. They went in shame and disgrace. But they still loved their city. Jerusalem, for them, was the height of everything. That was what every good Jew longed for, was to go to Jerusalem precisely because that's where the temple was and that's where the worship was. And they're, they're afraid because Jerusalem is in danger. When you're in exile, you still care about the place you came from. You still care about the city you love. And so in 2013, on Patriots Day, when the, the brothers set off the bombs at the, the marathon, my world was rocked. I was numb for days because I loved that city. It wasn't just a city in the country I care about. I love that city. That's how they felt. When they would hear reports of bad things that were going on in Jerusalem, they were rocked to their core because they loved that city. And they didn't love the place where they were. It was the place of the oppressor. They're surrounded by people who had conquered them. Now let's go to the other side of the contrast. When Jeremiah is writing to them, he doesn't say, Nebuchadnezzar took you into exile. He says, the Lord of hosts to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Jeremiah reminds them that it was the Lord himself using Nebuchadnezzar that sent them into exile. That it's not because Nebuchadnezzar was greater and more powerful and his armies were better than God. God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's not because Nebuchadnezzar was so good. It's because Israel, or Judah, the southern kingdom, was so bad that God went to war against them and put them in exile in keeping to his promised covenant curses in Deuteronomy 27. That's why they were there. There's an earthly perspective of why they were there, Nebuchadnezzar, but there's also the heavenly reality of why they're there. The Lord sent them there. He stood behind this. They were being judged and sent there. It's interesting how everything kind of came around. Where did Abraham come from? Ur of the Chaldees. 
Babylon. God called Abram out of Babylon into Canaan, and now his descendants are not being called out, they're being dragged out and dragged back to Babylon. It's almost as if everything has sort of come full circle as a result of their idolatry. Ponder for a moment what it would be like to live among your enemies, not as the victorious one, but as the defeated one. The one who has no social standing. The one who has no social power. Who probably experiences the derision of the locals when they walk by. (laughs) We we destroyed you. (laughs) Hope you like it here. The one who gets the bad jobs. That's what it's like for these Jews living in Babylon in that day. Peter, in his first letter in the second chapter, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he's he's speaking there not so much about the people around them, but the reality of the devil, the flesh, and the world. But he addresses them as exiles. You're not where you long to be. You're like pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. You long to be in the celestial city, but you aren't there yet. And because you're not there, that requires you to live in a particular way. We're like that. We are exiles, brothers and sisters. We have not yet arrived at the celestial city. And because we're not there, that is going to require us to live in a particular way that might be very different from the way we want to live. Here in Tucson, which in many ways I like, we are part of a minority community, not an ethnically minority community, though some of us may be, but we are part of a religiously, religious minority community, whether we want to admit that or not. That the world around us, the city around us, has different values than we do. has a different lifestyle in many ways than we do. We have not been conquered, but our experience often can be very similar. We can experience a, a powerlessness as we wish certain things could change around here, and yet we seem unable to do them. There can be fear as we watch the way culture is moving and shifting and changing all around us, just as the Israelites experienced fear in Babylon. We experience longing for something far greater than this, something far better than this. And sometimes we experience anger because we see the destruction, and it's hard for us to handle. So as exiles, longing for home, we can often lose sight of our calling and our hope. 
And that's where Jeremiah now brings the exiles, their calling and their hope. Secondly, we are to live by faith, fulfilling God's purposes. Now, it was Jeremiah, as we, as we heard in Jeremiah 25, that he had prophesied that they had been there 70 years, a number in keeping with their rebellion. Okay? A matching, uh, their rebellion. Because the, the land had to rest, because they hadn't rested the land as they were supposed to. So for 70 years, now here's the problem. It alludes to this, but doesn't exactly say it. it, it at the very end, it talks about the prophets that they are, are saying their own thing, that they're not speaking God's word, okay? There were prophets there kind of basically saying, we're only going to be here a little while. God's going to whoop up on those Babylonians before you know it. In a couple of years, by golly, we're going to be home. So don't worry about where you're living right now. Just kind of focus on, the you know, this is short term. Jeremiah needs to remember, remind them, this is long term. This is going to be more than one generation. Okay? Don't listen to those liars. God has something better for you in Babylon. It's not, he's not holding it all out for you in Jerusalem because some of you aren't going to live long enough to see that. And so he tells them, build houses. Live in them. That sounds obvious, doesn't it? You know? But no, not rent. Build houses. Okay? I think that's significant. He wants them to prepare for the long haul, not to live as squatters, not to live like refugees in Jordan as we were praying about, you know, you're kind of living in a tent and, you know, you're hoping to get out of there pretty soon. Build houses. Settle in. It's going to be okay. When I had been in Winter Haven uh, for about a year, I had been living in an apartment because I had no money, um, but I had saved some money. And so I thought, I think it's time for me to buy a house. And part of why I wanted to buy the house is I wanted to communicate to the congregation, I'm here for the long haul. I'm not just going to be here until the first time someone gives me a jingle and says, hey, Steve, we hear you're doing good things in Winter Haven. Why don't you come on up here? I wanted them to know I was there and I was staying there. Okay. They need to remember they're staying there. Act like it. Don't always kind of have one foot in Babylon and one foot in Jerusalem. Get both your feet in Babylon right now. Not only that, plant gardens. I'm sure my wife loves that right there. Plant gardens and eat their produce. This, this should kind of, in our minds, go, Genesis 2. There's echoes of the creation mandate here. There's echoes of Adam's original calling here. Work and eat. Don't be on the government dole because you think you're only there for a couple of years. Settle in. Work the land. Eat. And so faith for them, in part, meant settling in where God had placed them. And life for us is the same way. To settle in where God has placed us. During our transitional years, 
Not happy years in the Cavalera household in some ways, but very good years in other ways. For a while, uh, you know, it was like, we really should work on this part of the house and do something with this, but, you know, yeah, we're going to move soon. Why bother? Well, you know, the months started to roll into years. <laughs> so finally, it's like, yeah, let's get rid of that ugly light fixture in the bathroom. Let's do that. Yeah, let's get rid of that border in the kitchen and let's paint the kitchen. Let's do that. Okay. Sometimes we, if we kind of have one foot in one place and one in another, even if you're not sure where the other one is yet, you begin to not do that which you ought to do. Okay. And we had to learn to do it anyway. doesn't matter if we reap the benefit if we actually move within months of painting that wall. It's painted. It looks a whole lot better than the flat white people. Okay? That's what they were supposed to do. Not put their life on hold until they get back to Jerusalem. They were to engage in life meaningfully. I was flipping through my old uh, sonship notes this week looking for something else, and ran across something I wrote down from Josiah Bancroft's message. Faith means I can remain in a very difficult situation as a minister of grace. There's a reason I wrote that one down. I was in a very difficult season of ministry. And faith didn't mean running away to a nicer, beautiful place of ministry. Faith meant staying and serving in the midst of hardship. Jeremiah continues. Take wives. Okay, he's not telling them to be polygamists, okay? This is addressed to multiple people, not you personally, each of you take wives. Take a wife, okay? Take wives and have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Once again, we have echoes of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. He's reminding them that this creation mandate has not kind of been put on hold or expired because you're in a place you don't want to be. It continues. Fulfill the creation mandate, he's telling them. Partially, I think this is because when hardship comes, what do we tend to do? We tend to shrink down our lives. We, we tend to become less engaged in life. We, we kind of we want to hide. We want to hunker down. And Jeremiah is saying, don't hunker down. Don't hide. Continue to engage in life. Get married. Have children. Have grandchildren. All of these things. Very important that Israel continue to prosper. But it's not only the creation mandate, but it's also an echo of the Abrahamic promise in, in Jer uh, Genesis 12 and the covenant in Genesis 15. Because God said in 12 that I'm going to make you a great nation. You, old, infertile Abraham, are going to become a great nation. And then a few years later, when it hasn't happened yet, God has to remind him and he says, Look up at the sky. Can you count those stars? Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky beyond numbering or counting. And so God is saying, I have not given up on you, Israel. You're still going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. 
I may have brought judgment for your disobedience, but that is not the end of the story. There's still a Messiah that must come. The true seed of Abram must still come. And so the exile doesn't mean God's all done. As we think about this, we we should remember, particularly as we think about the Abrahamic covenant and promise, we should remember that in Christ, as we saw in Galatians, we are sons of Abraham, and God is still unfolding His promises through us. See, Galatians 3. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Why, Why does Paul say that? Because in Genesis 12 it says, through you all the nations will be blessed. And so Paul understands this on the far side of the cross saying, God meant that the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would bring the Gospel not just to Israel, but to the world. And so, he preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If we're in Christ, we receive that blessing that only Christ has. And so, as we think about God's unfolding promises, in light of the cross, we think not only of the creation mandate, but we should also think of the Great Commission. We should be Working, building homes, all of that kind of stuff. And also, we should be making disciples. doesn't matter whether we want, where we want to be, where you are, make disciples. And so faith changes how we live in hard places because faith focuses us on God and His promises instead of our circumstances. Thirdly, pray for Christ to bless the enemies around you. He tells them, seek the welfare of the city. Not Jerusalem. Babylon. How would you like to hear that if you're a Jew who just got beat up and carried away by Babylon to Babylon? Seek the welfare of that city. Are you kidding me? I want to pray in precatory psalms. I want the wrath of God to descend upon that place. No, that's not what he says. Pray for its well-being. Love the city. Now that requires a lot of faith, doesn't it? To love Babylon. That word seek usually is used with regard to prayer. This is the idea of entreating somebody. But Calvin notes for us, I think rightly, that it can also refer to action. And so we should, when we hear this, we should think of both prayer and works going together. Okay, we're redeemed, and in Ephesians 2, it talks about how we now have access to the Father because of the Son in prayer, but in Ephesians 2, it also talks about the good works that He has planned for us beforehand, that we're 
so that we might walk in them. And so these two things biblically are meant to go together. And Jeremiah, I think, is also thinking of them going together, seeking the welfare of the city in your prayer, but also in your actions. There is no mission without prayer. But mission al- uh, sorry, prayer alone isn't the mission. Christopher Wright, the other book that I had that talked about Jeremiah 29, uh, The Mission of God, which one day I'm going to finish this book. It's like this, so, you know, it takes a while. The exiles had a task, a mission no less, even in the midst of the city of their enemies, and that task was to seek the welfare of that city and to pray for the blessing of Yahweh upon it. Even though they're idolaters and wicked people. Welfare. Sometimes it's, uh, some translations have prosperity. Hebrew, it's shalom. Pray for the shalom, the wholeness, the well-being. Uh, if we were at a, a TED seminar, they'd say the, the human flourishing of this city. Pray for that, Jeremiah says. The shalom of the city. In other words, the Jews were not supposed to be resistance fighters. It's not World War II. It's not France or Holland. Okay? Not a resistance movement. We see this idea of shalom brought to its head in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, Christ is our peace. And if he had written that in Hebrew instead of Greek, I'm willing to lay money down if I'm a betting man, that it would have been shalom. Because he has brought peace with God and he also brings peace with one another. There's, there are to- both dimensions of this. There's the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of the peace right there in Ephesians 2. And he means to continue that. We as Christians, while we're in exile, we have peace with God, but we're also supposed to pursue peace as much as it depends upon us with those who are around us, even though they hate us. Even though they don't want us around. It doesn't matter. We seek their well-being. And so we recognize, again, that idea from Genesis 12... I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And part of kind of how this works is, in a sense, you're almost praying that they begin to bless you so that God stops cursing them and blesses them. And Jeremiah continues with that idea of, your well-being will be in the well-being of the city. They're not disconnected. But they're brought together. So that's, that's where that, that Genesis 12 thing helps us understand what he means by that. And as we remember that it is in Christ that all the families of the earth will be blessed, as we remember that, we, we think, remember that all human flourishing is in Christ. 
And so we want to, to see those who are currently opposed to Him in Christ and begin to pray for it and work for it. Where Jeremiah is really going with this, in its welfare you will find your welfare, is contrary to the human tendency to us versus them. And that is the narrative that we see in the news all the time, and it's, it's, it's popping up, the gay marriage issue, and numerous stories. You, you really get that it's us versus them, right? It's easy to feel that way, because in a sense it is that way. But what we need to do is not act that way. Not to act, to speak like we're at war and like we hate those people. We want them to be part of us. But they'll never be part of us as all we do is yell at them. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Not, you're going to hell! Now, there are times we need to say that, but not that way. We need to warn people about the danger that is ahead of them. Sorry for the little ears that may have been startled by my yell. Okay? Some of you are sensitive. I understand this. I'm sorry. Even when we warn them about the dangers of their sin and the wages of it is death, we don't act like we're wanting it to happen to them. I think that's what upsets so many people about Tim Keller. Because he doesn't yell about that. And so I think part of what, what Christopher Wright brings up, and I think rightly is that they were not to see themselves as victims of Babylon, but they were more to see themselves as visionaries for a redeemed Babylon. This is not contrary to the New Testament. We see this in the New Covenant. Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Not pray against your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Pray for God to bless them by bringing them to Christ that they may experience all the blessings that are in Christ. But not just that. Matthew 6, as I mentioned, the Lord's Prayer, the subversiveness of it, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not just amongst us, but also them. May they begin to hallow it with us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, work in such a way that they do your will because right now they're in rebellion. Bring them into obedience to the Son. Move in them in such a way as it talks about in, in Psalm 2 that they kiss His ring. That they recognize the, the King of love. Who wants what's really best for them. And so that means that requires us to, to see two things. And the first is seeing Tucson as it is. 
studying its brokenness. Being able to recognize the false gods of this city. To recognize, you know, the Jews had to recognize the aggression. That was pretty easy for them to recognize the aggression of Babylon. But there are ways in which there is aggression within our own community. Greed. Corruption. We need to see this city as it is. So we know what to pray about. But that's not all we do. Okay? We need to start thinking about what does Tucson need from Christ to flourish? Or where is it failing? In a sense, we need to begin to see Tucson as it can be. Trust me. Lots of politicians are doing that right now. And they're moving toward that. Their, their view of what it can be is often very different than ours. I'm not talking about bringing up guns. I'm talking about throwing up prayers. I'm talking about preaching the gospel. I'm talking about taking care of the poor. That's what I'm talking about. Trying to create the city that we long for, in a sense. Knowing it will never be finished. That's part of why I think in 1 Timothy 2, Paul talks about their worship to Timothy, and he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet li- a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, that's exactly Jeremiah 29. He's praying in the welfare of the, for the welfare of the community, precisely so the Christians there can lead peaceful and quiet lives, not ones that are ravaged by sin and war. That they might be dignified and godly in every way. Not a, a, so we can get rich kind of peace, that we can be godly kind of peace. Okay? And that's what Jeremiah is talking about, I think. And so we need to pray for those broken places. We need to pray for the education in this city. We need to pray for the politics in this city. We need to pray about the corruption in this city, about the sexual immorality of this city. And we could go on for a while, I guess, but I don't have that much time. And so we pray, but we also work for the good of the city according to your gifts, according to your interests, Tutor, serve, evangelize. We have opportunities that we're talking about uh, for us to kind of get a taste of that and see if something, uh, you know, floats your boat. But if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven, which means that you long for the city whose builder and architect is God alone. Here, we are surrounded by people who are pursuing sin and sometimes at our expense. And we can easily feel like we're powerless victims. But faith in Christ and the true King calls us to be visionaries. Seeing the sin of the city that needs the redemptive work of Jesus and seeing the city as it can be if Christ transforms it And so let's live by faith. 
fulfilling his purposes revealed in the creation mandate, fulfilling his purposes as revealed in the Great Commission. Since we can't be in the city we love, the heavenly city, let's love the one we're in, Tucson. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would give us a heart for this city. That you would cultivate what's already there. For we love this city in some ways. We cheer for the wildcats. We want it to go reasonably well. But give us a greater passion, a greater desire for the redemption of this city. For the spread of the gospel in this city. For the alleviation of misery in this city. Father, we pray that you would bring wholeness, shalom to this city through the work of your church because of Christ, who is our peace, because of Christ, who is our redemption, because of Christ, who is our King. We ask this in his name. Amen.